Welcome, and thank you for listening to Grace Heritage Church Audio, building a household of faith on a foundation of grace. Visit us online at graceheritage.org. Please stay tuned after the message for more information. Thank you. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather around your word. God, we thank you for the encouragement that it brings to our hearts um, to reflect on uh, the gospel, to reflect on what you have done for us. And I pray that that would make us merciful people, that we would love others through acts of mercy, practically, tangibly. Teach us how to do that. Give us that burden. Give us wisdom now as we seek the scriptures to further understand um, and to go and make application of it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, during the past few months here at Grace Heritage, there, ha- there has been a considerable push um, to emphasize uh, the topic of mercy ministry. Now, part of the driving force behind all of this is the observation of the of the sad disparity that exists between how much is said in Scripture about showing love for others in acts of mercy, and how the observation of how little is actually done by so many churches and professing Christians. Um, and so we long to be biblically balanced people to to demonstrate our faith in, in words and in action. Um, today we'll end our series that we've been looking at for the past few weeks. And throughout this study, I've tried to emphasize over and over that mercy is not simply another peripheral thing on the horizon in our radar screen that if we get around to it, we should probably be doing, but rather that it is central to what it is to be a Christian, that showing uh, loving others through acts of mercy is not optional. Not that it earns us any merit before God, in fact, we, we recognize that we are the recipients of mercy. The ultimate act of mercy has been done by God on our behalf. And so we stand in awe of the cross. Um, we simply imitate our Savior and we act like His followers as we go about the task of doing mercy uh, in this world. And so in coming to the end of this study and in reflection of things that um, we have said so far about this, I ask you, Are you engaged in it? Are you um, living out these commands? How are you living out these commands? To whom are you showing mercy? Now, I'm not insinuating that none of you are doing this. I know that many of you are. Um, In just the few months that I have been here, I've personally either received love from you guys in, in in a tangible way, or I've witnessed, I've watched you meet the needs of others around, and I and and I I praise God for the the witness that you are, the testimony that you are to His grace. Um, But I bet that all of us here would admit that there is room for progress, that we all could and should be doing more, that at times you fail just like all the rest of us. Um, God knows that I do. In Thessalonians, Paul, Paul tells the Thessalonians, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And he goes on to say, But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And many of us know, we know that we should be doing these things. We know. But, but the, the scriptural admonition to us is that to continue persevering in these things. The goal for all of us is progress. Being here and talking about these things is beneficial to us. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir one another on to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the talk about mercy shouldn't end today at 12 o'clock. And uh, in our lives, mercy shouldn't be something that we simply check off to say, yes, now we've done mercy and we can go about. It should characterize our lives. It should be an ongoing pursuit. And yet, I recognize that in my own life, at many times, my life is not characterized by this pursuit. Why? That's the topic of discussion today. To identify what it is that threatens our mercy. Why we often fail to love others in acts of mercy. Now, what is it that often keeps us from loving others in this way? I want to think about it and, and be honest. Um, picture a normal day, wherever you are, at home, work, school, the store, somewhere that you go. And imagine, or picture the people that you would normally interact with. Now, suppose that one of those people is really struggling with something. Maybe it's a coworker, a roommate, uh, the woman on the bus that you sit next to, the man behind the counter. They're really struggling with something. They're in need of mercy ministry for, for any number of reasons. Now, suppose that you see that person, you look at them, and then you simply walk away without saying anything or doing anything at all. You simply just go about your day. Now, brainstorm with me. What are, the poss- what are some of the possible reasons why you didn't meet the need that they have? Why might we have not met that at that, at that occasion? Think somebody else will? Okay. What else? So, in, um, you feel like you're unable to help them? Too busy? Don't recognize it? Any other ideas? Fear? We could probably, I mean, we could probably go on and on. We could keep thinking of more and more reasons. Yeah, I'll be smart here and move this toward me so I don't have to keep stepping up there. Um, say that again? <laughs> Okay, um, maybe, I don't know, I just can't pinpoint exactly what it is. Um, anything else? Now, these are all good, and for the sake of discussion um, today, I, I think that all of these, just make sure before I say that, I think all of these fit in one way or another into four categories or four reasons or four symptoms. And I'll explain in a minute why I refer to those as symptoms. Why we uh, fail to show uh, mercy to others. And many of you have you have these, but for the sake of your handout, I'll just write the proper terminology. Unawareness. Like you said, we simply don't even recognize. I mean... The reason I might not have helped that person was because I wasn't even aware that they had a need. I didn't say anything about it being evident. Um, uh, Unconcern. And then you guys mentioned that. Um, Fear. 
and, and fear really in, in two parts. Um, fear that we might be, fear of being used or hurt. Um, man, I just, my mind just went blank. Uh, fear that if we give to others, um, we might not have enough for ourselves. And then greed. Um, what I want to do is to look at each of these, to consider how each of these are, are threats to, to mercy. Now, many of you don't know this about me, um, but at one point in my college career, and I refer to it as a career because it took forever, I was, a, I was an art major and I was pursuing graphic design. Um, I never would have made it, but uh, I enjoyed art. And part of the reason was that it gave me an opportunity to express myself visually. Um, artists, uh, many artists use art as a way of portraying a scene in a certain light. They, really creative artists, they don't, they don't paint or draw something exactly like it is. They look at something, they pick out something that they want to emphasize, and they exaggerate that. And they make it characterize the whole piece or the whole, the whole work. You know, so they don't try to include every single detail. They try to draw on, on something in particular and bring that out. They want the viewer to look at something from a particular angle to see things through their eyes. Now, in a lot of ways, that's what I want to do here this morning um, with these four reasons. To paint them in such a way as to emphasize something that, um, that I see surfacing beneath all of them, which is why I call them symptoms, because I think they're symptoms of something else. Not that I'm creating this, but simply I'm highlighting or hoping to highlight something that I see as, as, as being evident. Uh, as I've reflected on all four of these this week, I've noticed that in a sense, they're symptoms of a deeper heart problem. They're excuses. The truth is, they're the truth disguised. They're an outward expression of a heart sin. And, and I qualify because there are exceptions. Um, I, I can think of a few, but generally, each of these four reasons why we don't love others is owing to one problem, love for self. Um, I think, and that's sort of my unifying element this morning, the biggest threat to mercy is self-love. Now, let me explain why I think that. Um, what are the two greatest commandments? We've, they were preached last week, what are they? Okay, love the Lord. With strength, uh, soul, all your strength, soul, might. This depends on your translation. What and what is the second? Love others as yourself. Okay. Now I ask you, where in either of those commandments is love for self mentioned? It's there. Where, how's it phrased? To love others as you love yourselves. Now, sometimes we think of that as a command, as if to say that I need to love myself first, and then I can go and love others effectively. But I don't think that's at all what Jesus is saying. Love of self is assumed. You and I naturally love ourselves. Our heart is bent on loving ourselves. We're born with me at the center of our universe. And the commands are 
to love others, or to love God with all of our being, and to love others as we are already loving ourselves. Um, and so when it comes to, to loving others, when we talk about showing mercy to others, how often our flesh, our self-centered flesh, rears its head. And I say that it does that in, in, in one of these four ways very often. Um, so let's consider each of these four symptoms of self-love. First, unawareness. We don't even recognize that a need exists. Now, consider yourself back in front of that person that I told you to imagine earlier. And, um, and consider the fact that the reason you didn't help them was because you didn't even recognize that they had a need. Why might you not have recognized that they had a need? I think there are a couple reasons probably. You're just not even paying attention. Um, what else might be? Oh, well, one way might be that uh, you expect them to express their needs the way that you would express your needs. Okay. Of trying to understand the way that they express yeah. their needs. For a so we're, we're, we're just not on the same, the same page. We're not connecting things. We're not aware of the way that they are expressing it. What about the fact that maybe they're not expressing it at all? And it's completely hidden for us. I mean, so I would say, I say there are exceptions to, to this being connected to self-love because, I mean, if, obviously if someone is, is completely hiding that they have a need at all, we, there can't be any fault on our part for not meeting it. But very often, what you were saying, is that people are expressing it. We just have to recognize how they're expressing it. They may be in a bad mood. They may be crying, have been crying. See, they're... I know, tears in their eyes or some, I mean, something like that. And, and, and we're not, oftentimes we're not aware of that or we don't recognize it. Um, also, um, I think it's kind of along the lines of what you said, is that our thoughts are focused on something else. Now, it would be, depending on what that something else is, would determine whether or not this is connected to self-love or not. Um, but what I want to emphasize is that I say that I say this is this is an unawareness is often a symptom of self-love because very often the reason why we are unaware of others and their needs is that we are overaware of ourselves. Our minds are consumed with our interests, our needs, our wants, our feelings, our joy, our pain. I mean, is that true? And and the scriptures call us Philippians two four says let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. Consider others better than yourselves. And I think Paul's going to hit on that next week when we talk about hu- humility. Um, scripturally, I don't think unawareness is a valid excuse unless, of course, the need is completely hidden because when the Bible speaks about loving others and doing good works, the Bible often uses very active language. Um, it calls us to seek needs, not simply to stumble upon them. Turn to Titus. book of Titus. It's right after 1st and 2nd Timothy. And Paul is writing to, to Titus who's in Crete. And the reputation of the Cretans is given to us in chapter 1, verse 12. It says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul says this testimony is true. So obviously, he's writing to people who are characterized by selfishness in one way or another. 
And Paul tells Titus to teach them these things. And I notice the theme that I want to, to try to connect here. In Titus 2.14, speaks of Christ having redeemed us from all lawlessness to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Zealous means to be eager, to be pursuing something. Um, Titus 3.1, remind them to be ready for every good work. Parents, when, on Sunday morning, when you tell your children to be ready for church at 9 o'clock, what do you mean? Are you saying, just do whatever you want. You know, if you get your shoes on, great. If not, no big deal. Whatever. No, you mean, get busy. Do something. Get ready. We're leaving at 9 o'clock. So, readiness implies that you need to be doing something. Titus 3, 8, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Again, in 3:14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. So, devotion implies that we are being enthusiastically giving ourselves to this. And so, I think that this means that we're to be active, that we're to be uh, attentive, that we're to be looking for needs to meet, not being passive. So overlooking needs, unawareness, is not a good excuse um, for not doing mercy ministry. So God help us to be aware, to actively look for opportunities to show mercy to others. Um, secondly, unconcern. And I think that this is probably the most dangerous of all um, if I can look at someone who's starving or hurting and simply walk away from them, what does that say about my heart? I see self-love here because we often fail to love others because we are too busy or we are too over-concerned about loving ourselves. It's very dangerous because of what it says about our heart. It casts doubt on our faith. It's a good indicator if we're just unconcerned being unconcerned is a good indicator that we either either deepen the sin of self-love or that we're just flat out playing religion. Um, we very well may not even be saved. Now, turn to 1 John and, and listen to the seriousness with which he speaks to this issue. 1 John chapter 3. 3.10 He says, By this... I'm sorry, I'll give you guys a minute. 1 John 3.10 By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Again in 4 verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in 4.20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And in case we might be thinking that, well, John's not talking about mercy ministry kind of love. Yes, he is. Look in chapter 3, 
verse 16 through 18. And here he defines part of what he means by loving others. By this we know love, that He, Christ, laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And sometimes, you know, we might even be tempted to try to make it sound spiritual, is that I don't have time to deal with the needs of others because I'm too busy focusing on my relationship with God. You know, sometimes we can even... Sin is so twisted that we can, we can even use growing in our relationship with God as an excuse to not engaging ourselves in meeting the needs of others. And you'll remember what James says about that sort of faith, that it's worthless, that it's dead. That sort of faith can't save you. Um, true faith is evidenced in, in acts of mercy and kindness and love toward others. So I say that the Christian heart should be characterized. I believe that's what John is saying. The Christian heart should be characterized by love, particularly for our discussion, love and concern for the needy in physical and tangible ways. So God, give us hearts that are burdened to want to help others, especially the brethren. That's the emphasis. Especially the brethren. Locally, here, and globally. To recognize that needs are all over the place. And where we fail in this, may God's Spirit convict us and change us to be concerned. So it's not that we're just completely unconcerned. It's that often we're just not concerned enough. So God give us that concern. Third, fear. And I want to deal with the first type of fear first. The fear of being used and hurt. And then this one really um, goes better with greed. So I want to talk about it there. So the fear of of being used or hurt. We often fail to love others because it's risky. We love our safety more. Um, You know, we naturally enjoy safety and comfort. And don't waste your life. John Piper issues a challenge for Christians to take risks for the cause of Christ. He says that safety is a mirage, that it doesn't really exist. You know, often we... When we approach a decision, we, we consider the, the, you know, weigh the pros and cons, whether or not we're going to engage in something or do something, and then we generally, we, just, we side with safety. Um, you know, because we're going we're gonna to go, this seems the, the wisest route, it will, you know, the best, most good for me, the least harm. When in reality, we don't know the outcome of either decision. We don't know that this is going to give us safety or comfort or that it will be the best decision for us. So safety, in a sense, is, is a mirage. We can't, we can't play God. We, can't, we don't know what the end of our decisions will be. Um, and so Piper, Piper defines risk as any action that exposes us to the possibility of loss or harm. You know, helping the needy can be risky. It isn't always safe. It wasn't safe for the Samaritan to help the man on the road. And if we take seriously the call to to meet the needs of others, especially the least of these, the hungry, the naked, those who are in prison, those who are sick, danger is inevitable at times. It's a very good possibility. If we help desperate people, who are really in need, 
we may very well be taken advantage of. We may be used. We may be physically hurt. We may be assaulted. We may even die. Or we may not. God knows. In Mark 8.34, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, you see the seeking safety? For whoever would save his life or seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Safety, safety isn't the goal of the Christian life. The glory of God is. And God is glorified when we do what He has called us to do and as we trust Him as we do it. I mean, that's exactly what Paul was talking about today and, it, and it's meant to be a warning to us and it's meant to be an encouragement to us to trust in Him. That, that we can go about the, the task of meeting the needs of others, even if it's risky, because we love them and because we love God. And we need not fear. And we have every reason to trust Him. Turn to Romans 8.35. Many of us have this memorized. Romans 8.35. Paul makes a list. It refers to tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And I ask you, where in that text does it say anything about us being spared from these things? What's the promise to us in 37? That in all these things, what? That we're what? We're more than conquerors. Paul speaks of these things as if they will happen. When they happen, in all these things, we need not fear. Why? Because we are more than conquerors. Because even if something bad happens, we still have Christ. Nothing can separate us from Christ. And in case you're wondering, I'm not altogether throwing out the use of God-given wisdom. I mean, I'm not. But I know that me personally, that if I have to choose between wisdom, if I have to choose between choices, Wisdom usually sides with safety. <laughs> it doesn't side with risk. And so I recognize that. Why? Because seeking, seeking safety can easily become self-love or a form of it. So that's, that's kind of what I'm just trying to call to our attention. That we need not fear. That God give us boldness to take risks if need be and to be engaged in meeting the needs of others. To learn to trust Him. And fourth, greed. As well as the last element of fear. Fear that we might not have enough left over for ourselves if we give our time, our money, our energy to meeting the needs of others. Um, those two things sort of go hand in hand. You know, we often fail to love others because we squander our resources to feed our own desires. Greed is a desire to keep more than we need. Greed says, I don't want to give to others because it will mean less for me. And, 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 and this fear is, is related, I say, because it's, it's sort of a worried fear. It's that once you get it, 
Hold on to it. Don't let go because you never know what's going to happen. You might need it later on. You don't want to give it to others. If you give it away, you might not have it yourself. And I think that those things are related. Do you see, do you see how self-love can be evidenced underneath of those? The three most common excuses that I've either personally used or that I hear people using when we talk about why we don't do mercy ministry or we don't engage in meeting others' needs is that I don't have the time, I don't have the money, or I don't have the energy. Now, common sense tells us that not everybody does have the time, not everybody does have the money, and not everybody does have the energy. I mean, at times, all of us will be on the receiving end of these things. If there were no needy, there would be no reason to talk about mercy ministry. And so not everybody is always giving. Some of us will at times be receiving. But for the most, most of the time it's true, I would say, that people who use the excuses, I don't have time, I don't have money, I don't have energy, they're just that. They're excuses. I know I use them that way, even if I do have the time, even if I do have the money, even if I do have the energy. Um, These resources of time, money, and energy are entrusted to us. We are to be good stewards of them. Um, I've listed some verses on on your handout, I believe, and I won't won't go into those for sake of time. But the Scriptures call us to to use stewardship, to to use those wisely. They're all limited in some sense. uh, And so we use them wisely. The Samaritan used each of these, his time, his money, and his energy, to meet the needs of the man lying on the road. And he was commended for showing that man love. The heart is deceptive. Uh, Greed and this kind of fear that says I need to hold on to things, they're very subtle. I mean, sometimes we don't even recognize how much they control us. Let me give you an example, a personal example. Say after I get done paying all my bills for the month, I have $100 left over. I'll be happy about that. So I have $100 left over. And I decided to buy something for myself. And any item, I mean, you can whatever it is, you know, something that I've been wanting. And I don't really need it. I mean, it's not necessary for my survival. It's not necessary for my happiness. I really don't need it. But I want to buy it. And I justify it as okay because everybody else in my income bracket has one already. And so I should have one. And so I go and buy it. Now, what if the next day an opportunity arises where somebody has a need for $100? I'm not able to meet that need anymore. Why? Because in my greed, and that's what it was, if I'm going to be honest with myself, I spent the money on myself instead of looking for an opportunity to use it for somebody else. Now, that's a simplistic illustration but you see the, the point that I'm trying to make. And, and hear me. Please hear me. I'm not trying to stand in judgment on anyone for, any, for the way that you use your money. But the way you use your money is between you and God. And every Christian needs to wrestle in his own conscience with how much to give and how much to keep. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to paint any particular, this is the amount you need to give or this is the percentage or anything like that. Scriptures don't impose that legalism on us. And so we shouldn't either. But the Scriptures call us to be generous. I'm just asking you to consider how subtle greed is. That it uh, it breeds it breeds below the surface. The, the the subtle greedy appetite for just a little bit more, just a little bit bigger, just a little bit newer, just a little bit longer. 
and the subtle fear that tells us that we just need just a little bit more and then we can be at ease because we'll have enough. Um, you know, and, and, and to just be, to be honest, we generally define normal lifestyle by what the culture defines as normal lifestyle. The reason why we think, the reason why I think that it's normal for a middle class family to have a nice house with nice decorations, heating, cooling, refrigeration, all the necessities and conveniences to have nice cars and a driveway overlooking a nice yard is because the culture says that's normal. True? I think that there's danger in that sort of mentality. That greed breeds there when we listen to what culture defines as normal versus what the scriptures define for us as normal. Let me read you a quote um, from Keller. And Keller has a chapter in this book on giving and keeping. And I would say buy the book just for that chapter because it's challenging to make you think. Um, but he's, he's quoting John Newton, who's a great hymn writer. And this was Newton's advice to a young husband. Just consider what he says. He tells the young husband, For the most part, we take care first to be well supplied, if possible, with all the necessaries, conveniences, and not a few of the elegancies of life. Then to have a snug fund laid up against a rainy day, as the phrase is, so that when we look at our children and near relatives, we may say in our hearts, Ah, now they are well provided for. And when we have gotten all this and more, we are perhaps content, for the love of Christ, to bestow a pittance of our superfluities, a tenth or twenty part of what we spend or hoard up for ourselves upon the poor. But alas, what do we herein more than others? Multitudes who know nothing of the love of Christ will do thus much. That was convicting to me. Uh, you know, that we, we, we really, I, I don't know, maybe this isn't, doesn't characterize you, but it does me. I tend to want to be comfortable and have things myself before I consider meeting someone else's need with what's left over. What about considering, or whatever happened to considering others better than myself? Whatever happened, happened to loving others as I love myself, myself? To use the same energy and creativity and passion and desire that I love myself to use that to others. I read an example of a man who was so convicted about this that he he set up a, a little fund bank or something like that. And for every dollar that he wasted on himself or something that he didn't need, he matched it. And then when a need arose and he saw it, he had money to go dip into and to meet that need. And I'm not saying everybody does do that, but you know that the principle there behind that is that I give to others what I normally would give to myself. I consider them better, and and that's convicting, beloved. We don't we don't I don't do that very often. Um, we make sure I tend to make sure that I'm satisfied first, and then others get what's left over. And to combat greed, the scriptures call us to contentment and moderation. And what is contentment anyways? I mean, how do you define it? Tendency is to think that when I get that new car, then I'll be content. Or when I finish expanding the house, then I'll be content. Or when I get the new entertainment center, then I'll be content. 
when I reach the hundred thousand dollar mark, hundred thousand dollar mark in my savings, and I have just enough, then I'll be content. But contentment in the Bible is not spoken of that way. Turn to First Timothy chapter six. First Timothy six nine. Paul says that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, greed, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. There's danger in the mentality that says I need more, that I want riches, that I want things. Back in verse six he says or seven, we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of it. And in eight, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. True contentment is to be genuinely satisfied with just the essentials. All that we need for our survival and all that we need, if anything, to give to others who, who might be in need. Um, and to those who are blessed with an abundance, who are given more than we need, which is probably all of us, or, or most of us. Look in verse 17, chapter 6, 17. What Paul's charge is to the rich. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Not to have confidence in the riches. Not to trust in the riches, but what? To trust in God. Why? Because He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Everything we have is God's. Everything we have has been given to us. And by His kind generosity. And so what are we told to do with the abundance that we have left over that we don't need to meet our own needs? In verse 18, He says, Command the rich that they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves a good foundation for the future, that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's not that we're giving up and we're in self-despair, but it, it, it's laying up treasures in heaven. It's getting something better than this world's riches have to offer us. And, and it's taking hold of that which is truly life indeed. That with the abundance we have left over, we are to give away to others. I love what John Piper says to the rich. If you listen to Piper, I can't say it like Piper says it. But he says, there's nothing wrong with making lots of money. Make your millions. What's wrong is keeping lots of money. He says, give it away before it does something to your heart. Generosity combats greed. Contentment combats greed. And we need not fear that if we give, we will be in want ourselves either. God promises to provide for those who provide for the poor. Proverbs 28.27 says, Whoever gives to the poor will not be in want. Again, trust God that if we give, God will provide for us. Putting action to that is difficult. I mean, it's easy for me to say that up here, but living it out is hard. Second Corinthians 9 reinforces this idea. After a discussion about contributing to the needs of the poor in Jerusalem, Paul's telling them to, to, to give, as you said, you, you promised to give, and he's reminding them. Paul reassures us that if we are giving liberally and cheerfully, God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. 
In other words, freely give without wearing because God will provide for you. Now, the call is for us to not, to not look at our, our wisdom or the world's way of looking at things and worldly wisdom and then, and then to, to, to let that oversee what the Scriptures say. The call is for us to let the Scriptures train our thoughts. And I don't mean to get stuck on money either. I mean, I said time and energy. Um, let's not be so naive to think that every need could be met with money. It can't. And the more difficult task is that of personal involvement. It's giving our time and giving our energy. It's spending ourselves. And I'll let one last comment about the idea of stewardship or whatever. Um, Helping others. The scriptural admonition in, in Galatians 6.2 that says that we are to carry one another's burdens. That cannot be fulfilled unless we are actually carrying part of their burden. In other words, if we aren't sharing the burden of others. In, in other words, we aren't sharing the burden of others in meeting their needs unless we are beginning to feel their burden ourselves. So it's probably true that I'm not giving enough money to meet the needs of other people if I haven't had to forfeit something for myself. I'm probably not giving enough energy if it hasn't begun to tire me out. And I'm probably not giving enough time if I haven't had to reschedule some things that I had hoped to be doing for myself. So sacrifice is necessary. Sacrifice is really nothing more than self-denial. It's denying ourselves the love that we are rightly commanded to love others and to love God. And in the end, that's the most loving thing we can do for ourselves. Because the scripture says that this produces true joy. Generous heart is a joyful heart. So don't, don't think I'm commanding, I'm, I'm not commanding anything, but don't think that I'm urging all of us to, to be, oh, we gotta give away, we're gonna be horrible people, life is gonna be horrible. No, scripture says this is what frees us. These things entrap us. Greed and fear burden us down. Generosity and giving and loving others and acts of mercy liberates us. And so I guess that the application today is a challenge for us to just examine our own lives um, to see if self-love is strangling out love for others. To consider whether being whether our being unaware or unconcerned has caused us to overlook needs and to consider whether fear or greed have turned our attention inward as opposed to caring for the needs of others. And remember, as I said, progress Progress is all of our is our goal is a goal for all of us. Progress is a goal for all of us. Let's pray. God, these things are challenging. They go against all worldly wisdom that tells us to get and keep um, and to store up for ourselves. And yet your word tells us that if we store for ourselves we're fools. I pray that you would give us a burden to want to care for others with our time and our money and our energy. God, that being unaware would not be an excuse. That you would open our eyes. That being unconcerned, God, that you would break our heart. That you would mold it into Christ-like love for the needy. That fear would be um, combated Lord, that, that we would not fear, but that we would trust in You. That You will provide for us. And that You would help us to combat greed 
to live contently, to live simply, to live moderately, to, to resist indulging our flesh with the things of this world um, and the hopes this world offers and to set our hope firmly upon Christ and to see that the joy that that can bring to us. And so I pray that you would convict us where we need to make changes. God, that the Spirit would work there and press and not let us just turn aside from these things, but that you would make changes, God, for the good of others and for your own glory. God, that you would be glorified as we do these things. Lord, we don't do them for our own. And if we're tempted to think that way, God, please reorient our thinking. God, that we're not, we're not being generous to, to draw attention to ourselves, but to draw attention to you. I pray that that would be our desire and that you would help us to see these things the way that the Scriptures present and to live the lifestyle, the radical lifestyle that the Scripture calls us to. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Grace Heritage Church meets in Auburn, Alabama. Services are held at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday morning at the Best Western on the corner of college and university.